The Pat Kenny Show with MasterCard. Share an extraordinary experiences all over the world with priceless cities at priceless.com. This is News Talk. Now, some of the comments coming in. Media have to realise that the South Dublin liberal elite is not the final word on everything. Hashtag Trump 2020, hashtag four more years, says one. Now, on D-Day, 75 years ago, my father, as a boy living in the south coast of England, having been shipped off into the countryside, got out of his bed and looked out his window. He saw aircraft after aircraft flying overhead, so many that he got tired looking, got back into bed and went to sleep. These aircraft were, in fact, the air support for the D-Day landings. Uh, more on D-Day. Shouldn't we be mourning D-Day? Shouldn't we be mourning the fact that we've learned nothing from it as we have got more unnecessary wars, bigger and smarter weapons and a scramble by the US for world domination? Uh, Dev signed the book of condolences for Hitler, says uh, uh, one texter, and Michael D signed it for Castro. Uh, my father-in-law from Dublin landed on Sword Beach and fought through the war in Europe. Then he was sent off to fight against the Japanese. Uh, that's from Charles. We're going to talk about UCD with Dr. Connor Mova, who's here with a colleague from uh, the School of Irish Celtic Studies and Folklore, Dr. Kelly Fitzgerald. But Connor, it would be inappropriate to have you here without reflecting back on what we called... The emergency. I suppose it would pass, wouldn't it? World War Two, Because the link is there. Dev was running the show. Yes. And he was still running the show when Belfield opened. He was indeed. Like, like in some cases, many have compared De Valera to Charles de Gaulle. Uh, George Orwell once, um, I suppose, unsympathetically um, cast him among the tin pot di- dictators of peripheral Europe. Um, but De Valera, from writing the Constitution back in thirty-seven, right the way through to holding the role of Taoiseach through to holding the role of President really did cast this shadow over Ireland's mid-century. Um, I suppose going right back to his symbolic role as the senior surviving commandant in the 1916 Rising. And um, yeah, I think we... we so the long fella we, cast a long shadow. A very long shadow and one that I think in terms of the Second World War is I think particularly significant of, of all the phases of de Valera's career. The Second World War is one of the most complex. Now, Dublin was uh, probably a little bit like Lisbon in a way. You know, it mm. was uh, neutral and a hotbed of intrigue. A hotbed of intrigue and spies and rumours and scares. My grandmother was living in Greystones during the war and commuting up to the other UCD um, back in Northford Terrace. And she said that she could hear the explosions from the North Strand bombing all the way down in Greystones um, on that particular night in 1941. Uh, we also have to remember that places as diverse as Camp Isle, <clears throat> Terranure, South Circular Road and the North Strand were all bombed uh, mm. during the I war. mean, the rumour was it that uh, the South Circular Road was bombed because the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, was there. And it's, pop trivia, the only synagogue in the world that the Nazis ever paid compensation for because the Irish government forced them to pay compensation for what they had bombed. My goodness. Mm. Um, it's more likely, I suppose, that the bombers went off target. I mean, uh, Belfast was a target, uh, so therefore the island of Ireland was uh, theoretically a target. And recently they restored the ERA sign on Killiney Hill. I don't yes. know whether you've seen that. My former Be- boss, Michael Kennedy, was the one that wrote the book about the, these um, coast-watching stations and about all these. So I've, I've seen the one up in uh, in Donegal at Dunfanny as well. And they yeah. really are and quite And this impressive. was, I mean, in this high-tech era, 
these uh, pilots, the German pilots, were needing things like that to show them exactly where they were. They well, didn't I have... think it was more so for the Americans as navigation. That was the, the again. This is about our belligerent neutrality. That the those coast washing signs all had a number next to them, and the U.S. pilots had a code to that, so they were able to see. Okay, we're coming off the top of Loch Foyle. So we were um, belligerently uh, neutral, but on the Allied side. Very much so. Yeah, that's the that's the not even emerging uh, consensus at this point. That is the consensus that historians have really drawn mm. from our weather reports, coast watching stations. Et and that's the role we played on D-Day, the weather. Exactly. Yeah, that wonderful documentary that was on during the week. Yeah. Um, so uh, when we look back on, on D-Day and often our role in World War II is characterised in a very bad light because Dev turning up at the chancellery to sign mm. uh, the uh, Book of Condolences for the death of Hitler, yeah. that is, is an unfortunate coda. It's, it casts a very odd shadow. I think the comparison with signing the book with Castro is a bit uh, extreme, but in many ways, I think the symbolic neutrality was a key part of Ireland's de-imperialisation in that period. That's the best thing I can say about it, I suppose. Um, the, the stranger one is exactly, and the Portugal comparison you made, I think is an excellent one, that Ireland was one of those cities where there were legations and embassies from both sides. So the fact that the Japanese ambassador was uh, sitting in some suburb of Dublin and uh, particularly the Italian ambassador, I, I understand, was a keen golfer uh, throughout the Second World War. These individuals were circulating, they were meeting with, uh, you know, the papal nuncio, they were rubbing shoulders with people like uh, David Gray, who was... Uh, a relative of, of Eleanor Roosevelt, if I remember correctly. So Dublin did have this very unusual yeah. situation. And it does mean that if, if any member of the public wants to go into the National Archives and read the embassy files and the foreign affairs files from that period, Dublin is a Casablanca or a Lisbon or one of yeah. these key places. And, and it has made for some very good fiction, I have to say, that it period has, uh, yeah. in Dublin. Now, yeah. uh, when you think about it, 75 years since D-Day, but 50 years since Belfield. I mean, they uh, do seem ages apart. And yeah. yet when you look back on it in this way, uh, uh, Belfield, I always think of new. It's not new at all. A lot exactly, of it is yes. new because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they keep building in Belfield. Yes, we have a history of, of occupation of the site as well as we started land purchases in the 1930. The president of UCD, uh, Tierney at the time, decided he would put University Lodge where it stands today and where our current president lives. And that was a kind of a symbol that the president is moving out to Belfield and soon everything will follow. Uh, as we were discussing just before the show, the first was science that moved out in 1964 and then the main move out to the campus. Very similar if students nowadays who are in DIT in Gormanston, exact same. Uh, yeah, uh, it's yeah, coming from various places because UCD was made up of uh, the College of Science in Marion Street, where yes. I went, uh, which is now the Chas Mahal or the government buildings, yeah. the School of Architecture, which was the last, I think, to move. And moved instead to Klonski. Richview, yeah, yeah, almost Richview, on campus. Or almost it is on, on, camp- yeah, on yeah. the campus. Yeah. The medical school, which yeah. is uh, on uh, St. Stephen's Green. Yes. Uh, that was there with St. Vincent's Hospital, which moved as well. So it was a piecemeal campus, unlike Trinity, which was all of a piece. Yes. Was there much discussion at the time about whether or not it was wise to take the students out of the city centre and go to what was suburbia? At the time, which is now I think seen there, as there was a real city. move to suburbia and the idea of having a greenfield campus where planning could be done. You know, if you look at RT archives from 1968 and 1969, this is the era directly after free education. Dun O'Malley announces free secondary education in 1966. And those children who got to go through free education were starting to come into the universities around 1970. 
and thereabouts. So they had to plan for those places. And Earlsford Terrace, what's now the National Concert Hall, was absolutely crammed with students, particularly as we got to the late 60s. So the, the, the need from a student perspective and from a UCD management perspective was absolutely key to find a space where UCD could move and breathe, but also where it could grow. Mm. And that's been the story of, of the last 50 years is continual growth on the campus. People can compare it, though, to Trinity College, which is managed by uh, wise purchases along Pier Street to stay very much a city centre campus and yes. all the better for it one yeah. would think and the RCSI owns as far as I understand the whole block of York yeah. Street there on, just on around the, the corner there, from yeah. us yeah. here um, the, the, there was uh, controversy obviously uh, about the move uh, abandoning the old Newman house which was part of the, the old Newman University mm. so it was uh, probably quite a sentimental thing for many people I'd say to, to go out to those green fields Absolutely. Uh, well, it's it's a mixture of sentimentality and modernity, I suppose, in that a lot of students embraced that change out and and saw that. The other thing I should say is we still own Newman House and it's undergoing renovation at the moment. So it's about to be uh, relaunched as Molly, the Museum of Literature in Ireland, uh, including the Ulysses manuscript. So. Now, you guys, Kelly, you're looking for uh, memories of Belfield. Yes, uh, yes. And you've already heard, I'm sure, lots of yarns and uh, lots of folklore about Belfield. Oh, there is a lot of folklore about Belfield. And I suppose here we talk about perhaps the controversy of moving out there. But it has been embraced and there is that kind of bittersweet relationship people have with Belfield, with the various nicknames that it's called and um, aspects and the narratives of even the architecture of the space, uh, why there is no place for students to uh, congregate, um, this sense that when it came out there in the early 70s, this is after student revolutions everywhere, so Dublin was not going to have it here in Belfield. But interestingly enough, uh, the, the plans for Belfield were from 1964. So it was designed way before any of that was happening. Um, but so you're talking about the 68 rebellion of yes, the students in yes, Paris, yes. which then came to to uh, UCD. And uh, I believe State Una Claffey is going to be talking about that uh, on Saturday at the Belfield Festival, uh, w- which is happening. Uh, there was a master plan, but I think Andre Weichert, who was the architect who won the international competition, even he could not have imagined the Belfield of today. No. All the buildings that have now been erected. No, and uh, it would be, I mean, he, I, I believe he passed away in 2009. So, um, but it would be interesting to see how he would view how the campus has developed um, and and how Belfield, the if you think of the science block, the library building and Newman building, the old arts block, or as it was referred to, and the restaurant, you know, that used to be have such a vision and now you come to the campus and it, it, it doesn't It's dwarfed have by yes, many yes. Of, of the uh, other buildings. And the water tower, which is um, it's kind of a peculiar structure um, just sticking up there. What was the point of that? So the, I, the water tower, I think, speaks to this democratic ethos that Richard put into the UCD plan. Um, interesting facts about him. He designed the UCD campus, having never been to Dublin before. He designed it on his mother's kitchen table in Poland. And, you know, just from plans and architectural drawings and things like that. And the water tower symbolises this modern spirit of post-war democratic architecture. 
There's 10 gallons in that water tower for every single member of students and staff, which was projected on, uh, I think, a 1,500 uh, or no, 15,000 uh, people on campus. Now there's something like 30,000 people on so campus. So they need more water. They need a little more water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if Irish water are listening, they might uh, send a little bit our way. But that was the kind of democracy of the way that it was planned out. All the buildings are planned 500 metres apart, which gives a nice short walk between buildings. And it's this cantilevered spine of a campus that uh, from the water tower down through science, agricultural science, arts, commerce, uh, right down to the new engineering building that the, the whole campus would, would hinge off itself. And it was trying to bring this sense of a kind of an Italianate forum uh, to rainy Dublin in the 1970s. Yeah, th- there was, and I don't think you guys uh, recall this, uh, but there was controversy over the construction of the church. Um, yeah, go on. The, the students didn't want it. In I need those to record days. this. I, yeah. This needs to be recorded. <laughs> no, this is only my memory of <laughs> yeah, it. And yeah. Eventually, some sort of settlement was made with the Archbishop of Dublin, whereby the church would be uh, temporary in the sense that it could be taken down. It wasn't made of granite and oh. stone and stuff like that that would be uh, very permanent looking, that it was a steel structure. But, you know, this is just anecdotal from me and perhaps other people can inform us as to how the dispute was resolved because you know those atheistic students if anyone wants to text in and tell us about that that'd be fascinating (laughs) so what are you doing on Saturday on Saturday we're having a bit of a soft launch um, on the UCD day Um, it's a a great festival across the entire campus and we're going to be there with some of our um, master students in public history and folklore uh, starting to collect memories from those, um, any connection to Belfield, former students, faculty, staff, uh, the community, uh, because it is really the individual narratives that bring people back to understand what it was like at certain times. And as we talk about it, it has changed so much. So that sense that Belfield in the 1970s is the Belfield of today Perhaps there are parallels, but there are a lot of differences. And the as well. legendary Belfield Bar in all its squalor. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And Which- a, a key venue for so many bands over the years as well. But I suppose there's also, like I said but, earlier. But the way I, I remember going into it, because it wasn't there when in when I was going in and out of Belfield, I went to, in to, to meet somebody there. I think we were making some sort of a program. Uh, which involved the consumption of drink. But <laughs> I couldn't believe how they had built it out of, you know, concrete and they had these uh, metal barriers like you'd have on Hill 16. Yeah. And it was designed to be puke-proof and vandal-proof. It's a wipe-down. I mean, it was desperate. Student experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it served its purpose well while it lasted, indeed. So it did the job for which it was And I understand before the bar was really a, a big thing, the restaurant was a key site for discos, hops, all night raves going right into the 80s and the 90s. And now there are gyms and swimming pools and I'm sure vegan eating as well. Oh, very modern altogether. (laughs) All right, so where do the guys go on Saturday to meet you? We will be um, set up in the new university club on campus um, waiting and willing to see people from 12 o'clock until 6. Very good. Well, uh, Dr. Conor Mulva and his colleague from the UCD School of Irish Celtic Studies and Folklore, Dr. Kelly Fitzgerald, thank you very much for joining us. (music) Thank <music> you.